Before we really begin to to delve into what this text is saying, however, I think it would be prudent to take a minute to talk about what this text is not saying. Our text this morning is not saying that men are better or more important or more valuable to God than women are. None of that is true. The Bible affirms again and again that both men and women were created in the image of God and that both have equal value to God. He loves and values both genders equally. Also, it is important to recognize that this text is often abused. It has been used as a stick to beat women into submission. It has been used as proof that men are the superior gender and that all women should submit to men. It has been used to keep women in abusive relationships. It has been interpreted in so many twisted and broken ways. Let me be incredibly clear. Any interpretation of this text that devalues women or inflates the value of men is an issue with the interpretation and not an issue with the text. Again, this is the word of God. It is truth. It is God's instructions to us, his people, his creation, his chosen race, his royal priesthood. But once again, like last week, sometimes truth is hard to hear. Sometimes the instructions that we are given are hard to accept. And so it is with today's text. The text is good. Its its message is good, but it is also hard And even though it has been abused, we can't judge the text on the abuse, but instead must focus strictly on its source, which is God. And so it is with that introduction that we read our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way that the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. A recent article put out by the American Psychological Association states that states this in its opening paragraph. In Western cultures, more than 90% of people marry by the age of 50. Healthy marriages are good for a couple's mental and physical health. 
They are also good for children. Growing up in a happy home protects children from mental, physical, educational, and social problems. However, about 40 to 50% of married couples in the United States divorce. This divorce rate, or the divorce rate for subsequent marriages, is even higher. For many of us growing up, once we reach the age where the opposite sex becomes attractive, we, we generally tend to look forward to getting married. It's, it's something that generally we desire. The support, the love, and the security that we believe marriage brings is incredibly appealing. And then we get married. And even though you love your spouse, even though you are attracted to them, even though you want what is best for them and for your relationship, there, is, there comes a time when you will disagree on something. In fact, there will be many times that you disagree on something. Sometimes the object of your disagreement will be trivial, right? It won't really matter, like which way the toilet paper goes on the roll. Sometimes the object of your disagreement will be incredibly huge, life-changing even. Like if you should take that job in Texas and move your family from the only home they've ever known. In the midst of these disagreements, it can feel like your marriage, like your relationship has become a, a battlefield. And in a battle, there are casualties. And 40 to 50% of the time in our world today, the casualty is the relationship itself. Tension, struggle in our marriages is not something that is a new or recent development. In fact, it's as old as Adam and Eve. After they had both eaten of the fruit that was forbidden to them and they had realized that they were naked and had felt shame for the first time and had gone and hidden themselves, God came and found them. And, and when they had confessed their sin to him, he laid out the, what the consequences would be. God laid out the consequences for the deceiver, for the man, and for the woman. Often when we hear about the woman's curse, we hear about the pain in childbirth, just as we hear about man having to work hard in the fields. But, but we don't hear that as much, but what we don't hear about as much is what follows. Genesis 3, 16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Part of Eve's woman's curse from the fall is that she would have a desire to control her husband but that the order in which God put things is that the husband would have the authority in the relationship. Eve wants to be the one in control, but instead is asked to be the one who submits. And that is what Peter is writing about in our text this morning. He says, wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands. When he says in the same way, he is referencing our text from last week. The passage that comes just before this where we are told to submit to the authorities that have been placed over us, even if we don't always agree with them, even if we don't always like them, even if they aren't just or fair. Peter is saying, in the same way, wives submit to your husbands, even if you don't agree with them, even if you don't like them in that moment, even, even if you're mad at them. Whew. It's pretty easy to see how this text has been abused. For just as women sin in resisting submission, so men sin in enforcing and abusing it. 
The text clearly says, wives, submit to your own husbands. It does not say, women, submit to men. This text has been used to try to elevate one gender over another. That's, that's not what it's doing. It is not saying that all women must submit to all men. The, the only arena that there are instructions for one gender to submit to another is in the intimate mutual relationship of marriage. Anything else is an abuse of this passage. Now, obviously, if you are a woman and your boss is a man, then you submit to their leadership. And if you are a man and your boss is a woman, then you submit to her leadership. But that's not a gender issue. That, that, that's a workplace issue. A further abuse is when we as men weaponize this passage to turn what God intended as an intimate, mutually respectful and loving relationship into a slave-master dynamic. This text is abused when it is used to dehumanize our wives, the women in our lives. When it is used to make them no better than the slaves to do the bidding of the one that they were told to be submissive to. And it is abused when the husband uses it as grounds to abuse his wife. There is no excuse, no justification for that. This text does not give license for abuse. A man's sinful response to the woman's sinful control is to try to put them in their place. When husbands enforce their wives' submission, it is sinful. It is wrong. It is not okay. And then we get to verses 3 and 4 where the text seems to be saying that women shouldn't be wearing jewelry or, or doing their hair or dressing up. Instead we read that they are supposed to be beautiful on the inside. Like Abraham's wife, Sarah. And, and, and so this portion of the text gets abused to shame women for the beautiful, for being beautiful, and for accentuating that beauty. That's not true either. God is not opposed to physical beauty. He designed it. He created it. It's not sinful to look good. Ladies don't need to go running around in potato sacks with their faces covered so they hide their beauty. Now, some of your beauty is to be shared only with your husband, and it's prudent to keep that in mind. There's a difference between displaying all of your beauty and being shamed for the beauty that modesty encourages us, encourages you to display. God made women beautiful. He created them desirable. Do not feel shame because of your beauty. Peter's concern in these verses are the emphasis. While outward beauty is not sinful, Peter is encouraging us to be more focused on inward beauty. He brings up Sarah, who was stunningly beautiful. But it isn't the outer beauty that Peter praises, but the inner beauty which is displayed in these texts as submission to Abraham. Even though he asked her to do some pretty stupid things, like pretend to be his sister instead of his wife, which led to her being brought to the Pharaoh's bedchamber. How was that supposed to be a good idea? It wasn't. It was lying and deceitful, and it was a decision made out of Abraham's fear and self-preservation instincts. And still, Sarah went through with it. And even though his idea was dumb... She is honored for submitting to her husband while he is the one that lives in ridicule. And then there is the little quip in verse 7 that says that the wife is the weaker partner. What's going on there? 
This isn't lesser. This isn't less important. This is talking about physical stature. Now, I personally am well aware that there are many, many women in this world who could whop the tar out of me in a fight. Like, I, I know that. I, I, I recognize that. And, and I'm sure that Peter was well aware of that for him as well. He's painting with a broad brush here. He's talking about how women are generally not as physically strong as men are. That, that's biology. You don't believe me? Go watch the Olympics. Watch this snowboarding half-pipe competition. Watch what tricks the men are expected to do, and the judges are astounded if the women can pull off. The, the gap is, is massive. Our bodies are just different. Our, our muscle mass is different. That's not a bad thing. It's a necessary thing. Remember, some of us are supposed to be working in the fields, right? This text is not saying that women are weaker in their spirit. It's not saying that they are weaker in their faith. It's not saying that they are weaker in any way that actually matters. Again, both genders are made in the image of God. Instead, it is a text that is acknowledging that men are to be protecting and caring for their wives, bringing them security and comfort as the men have generally been given more strength than the women generally been given more strength. Again, this is not an observation of value, but a call for men to do their job and protect, care, and nurture their spouse well. It's a call to not do so many of the things that men tend to do when they abuse these texts. This is a call to not take advantage of your wife's submission. It's a reminder that the, the, of the role that men have been given. We need to elevate our wives, encourage them, praise them, love them, bless them, nurture them, encourage them in the gifts that God has given to them, support them as they follow His call in the ministry that God has called them to. And men, we need to be told to do this because we're bad at it. We're bad at it. We're good at focusing on our needs. We're good at focusing on us. We are directed to elevate, raise, protect, nurture, and encourage our wives. Let's do that. And as we look at all the pain that has sprung from passages like this, and we see all of the hurt that they have caused, the damage that they have done, we begin to question why they were even written in the first place. This passage was not written so that it could be abused. It was written so that we might have healthier relationships and so that ultimately God would be glorified in the order that he has established. That God would be glorified? We understand how God is glorified in power and authority because that makes sense to us. Like we get that. But how is God glorified in submission? The Broadway musical Hamilton has been highly touted, and so last week when it was released on Disney+, Plus, Karen and I were excited to watch it, and man, it was, it was really good. It took me a minute to get used to some of the rapping and, and the quick singing, but that was a flaw with me, not, not a flaw with the musical, and it gets much easier as the musical goes on. It got easier for me anyway to, to absorb now, as many of you know, the musical is about Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of America, and was written based off a biography written by Ron Chernow. And so since the story is about Alexander, I just figured that he would be the most 
engaging character. And he is engaging. But there were a few other characters that just really began to shine in their own right. I wouldn't say they stole the show, but as I watched their story intermingled with that of Alexander Hamilton, I I definitely grew more curious about them. I, I wanted to know more about them, about their story. And one of these characters that stood out above the rest for me was Alexander's wife, Eliza. The whole play, she seems to be in someone else's shadow, and and so you don't really pay her that much attention. (coughs) And yet, as the musical goes on, you, you can't help but be drawn into her story. She starts off in the shadow of her older sister. She's the second eldest of a well-off family in New York. She, she meets and marries Alexander, and as Alexander's story continues to unfold, man, you really begin to feel. You begin to really, like, just feel bad for his wife, Eliza. Now, I'm not trying to ruin plot lines here, but it's all history, and the musical doesn't pull a, a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and, and rewrite history. It follows the biography that, that Chernow wrote, and it follows it very closely. And we see this, this woman who, whose husband has an emotional affair, affair with, with her older sister. A physical affair with their neighbor. Which becomes the first sex scandal in the new country. In which he is outed, right? They, they, they call him out on it. And then so that his enemies will have nothing to blackmail him with, Alexander publishes his own account of the affair with, with lurid details. Exposing everything. And the brutal honesty with which he lays out his shame, he heaps shame on his wife. Eliza has eight children, the eldest of whom ends up dying in a duel over the honor of his father, over the honor of Alexander. And as you watch this story unfold, you wonder at Alexander, but your heart breaks for Eliza Hamilton. How does she do it? How does she stay with her husband through all of this? How does she survive the heartache and the betrayal and the shame? The musical doesn't dwell on it very much, but when you research Eliza further, you realize that what keeps her head above water is her faith. Eliza Hamilton was a Christian. It was her faith that got her through the the affairs and the losses and gave her the strength to stay with her husband. And it was her faith that had a profound effect on her husband. Alexander had grown up a strong and fervent Christian, but had walked away from his faith as he had grown older. And yet, it was the faith that he saw in his wife that pulled him back from the brink. Hamilton famously died in a duel with Aaron Burr over an affair of honor on the same field that his son had died on a few years earlier. But before he went to the duel, he left his wife a letter, and in that letter he wrote, The consolations of religion, my beloved, can alone support you. And these you have a right to enjoy. Fly to the bosom of your God and be comforted. With my last idea, I shall cherish the sweet hope of meeting you in a better world. Adieu, best of wives and best of women. Embrace all my darling children for me. 
Alexander knew where his wife found her strength. And because of her faith and the effect that it had on him, he had the sweet hope of meeting her in a better world, in heaven. Eliza's submission to her husband, even though he had done so many things to be unworthy of it, his witness of her love for God and the submission to him that that love resulted in, is what God used to bring him back into the fold. The lost sheep returned home. In our submission, we bring glory to God. Submission is not rooted in who your husband is or how responsible he is. It is not rooted in whether or not your husband is a believer. Submission is rooted in God's good and wise authority. So how are we doing with that? Wives, how are you doing in submitting to your husbands? Husbands, how are you doing in submitting to God's authority instructions on how you lead your household? Divorced? Married? Not married? How are you doing in submitting to the unjust leaders in your life? How are you doing in submitting to the just, the good authorities that God has placed in your life? How are you doing whether wife husband, single, how are you doing in submitting to God? We struggle, don't we? We don't submit perfectly, do we? Submission is just, it's so hard and, and it's so uncomfortable. We, we don't like the idea of it. We don't like the implications of it. We really, we just really don't like it. And yet we are called to it, called to it by the one who models it perfectly for us. For the principle of submission directly relates to the example and the person of Jesus Christ. For Christ submitted perfectly to the Father. And let's just sit in that for a moment, shall we? We want to talk about how if the husband is placed in authority and the wife is under the husband's authority, asked to submit to the husband, then in our understanding that would mean that the wife has less value, is less important than the husband, right? Well, maybe from our twisted and and sinful human reasoning, we can come to that conclusion, but that is not the truth that God brings. In the person of the Trinity, we have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. All three God, all three having His power and ability, all three being fully God, they all share equally in essence. And yet Son submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits to Father and Son, equal in essence, all fully God, and yet within the Trinity we see submission modeled perfectly for us. Husband and wife, equal in essence, both created in the image of God, both equally important to him, and yet one has to submit to the other. And one tasked with protecting, caring for, and loving the other well. If God is not above following the order that he has put in place, why do we think that we are? I am so thankful for the submission of Christ to the Father. 
I will never forget this scene in the garden on the night that Jesus was betrayed, praying and crying and calling out to God, if it is your will, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. I don't want to do this, he says. I I don't want to suffer. I don't want to take the sin of the world upon me. I don't want to be cast away from your presence. I don't want to drink this cup of wrath that is before me. But not my will, but yours be done. In Christ's submission to the Father, we were made right before God. In Christ's taking our sin upon himself. In Christ's becoming sin for us. In Christ's dying in our place. In his doing what we would never have been able to do. In his rising from the dead and in his conquering sin and death, in his submission to God's plan, Jesus justified us before God so that when God sees us, he does not see our sin. He doesn't see our shame and our failings. Instead, through the faith that we have been given, we have been clothed in Christ so that it is Christ that God sees when he looks at us. In Christ's submission to the Father, we are forgiven. Do you struggle with submission? Do you struggle with leading well? Do you struggle with submitting to the authority that you just don't like, that you don't feel is worthy? Do you struggle with abusing scripture so that it fits your narrative? Do you abuse God's call to submit? Do you submit perfectly? In Christ's submission to the Father, there is forgiveness for your failure to submit perfectly. Though we don't like it, though at times it chafes as Christians, we strive to follow God's laws, his commands, and his instructions for our lives. And among those commands is submitting to the order of things that he has put in place. Submitting to authorities that we don't like, submitting to husbands that aren't sinless themselves. And though we strive to do these things well, we fail regularly. I encourage you, but more importantly, the Bible instructs you to strive to submit. Know that God is working on you so that submission to the way that he has ordered things comes easier. This is what God wants. And it brings him glory when we submit because it shines a light on Christ's submission for the sake of the world. But when we fail to submit, know that there is forgiveness. Know that Christ's submission purchased your forgiveness. Rest in that. Rest in that as you strive to submit to those God has placed in authority in your life. Rest in God's love for you. Rest in the truth that he made you in his image and you are important to him and cherished by him. Rest in the truth that God is using you in spite of your brokenness and his mission to bring about his kingdom. Rest in the fantastic, wonderful works of God. What a fantastic, wonderful, amazing, and gracious God we serve. Amen.